0: You're listening to Love, Maine Radio with Dr. Lisa Belial, recorded in the studio of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street, Portland, Maine. Dr. Lisa Belial is a physician trained in family and preventative medicine, acupuncture, and public health. She offers medical care and acupuncture at Brunswick Family Medicine. Read more about her integrative approach to wellness in Maine Magazine. Love, Maine Radio is available for download free on iTunes. See the Love Main Radio Facebook page or www.lovemainradio.com for details. Now, here are a few highlights from this week's program.
1: There's a multitude of things that we are focused on, but they all have the same core. It is trying to make a difference, and at an early enough age that it does make a difference. There's creativity in all of us, it's just how do we express it? How do we encourage it? How does our business world encourage it? How does our educational world encourage creativity?
0: Love, Main Radio is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Main Magazine, Apothecary by Design, MacPage, and Berlin City Honda of Portland.
2: This is Dr. Lisa Belial, and you are listening to Love, Main Radio, show number 200, Giving Voice airing for the first time on Sunday, July 12, 2015. Today is a big day on Love, Main Radio. We have officially reached our 200th episode. We began our journey as the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast in 2011, and we have interviewed hundreds of visionary Mainers since that time. We found ourselves continually blessed by what our guests have been willing to share and hope you have enjoyed our conversations as much as we have. Today, we feature a philanthropist and music mastermind, Dan Crew, and a selection of other past memorable guests as we celebrate the joy of giving voice. Thank you for joining us. For the past three years, Maine Magazine has put together a list of 50 Mainers who are really visionaries for our state. And Dan Crew is one of these 50 Mainers. Of course, he probably belonged on the first list, but I'm fortunate because he's on this year's list, and I get to speak with him this year. And this happens to be our 200th show, which is a very big deal for us. Um, so thanks so much for coming in, Dan. Oh,
1: I'm, I'm very happy to.
2: And let me give a little background about you for those who— I'm sure almost everybody who's listening has heard of Dan Crewe or read the magazine, but I'll give your background because it's important. You've done a lot. Um, this is Dan Crewe. He's a supporter of the arts in Maine. He is currently the president of the Bob Crewe Foundation, named for his late brother. The foundation is intended to help aspiring musicians and artists find fulfilling careers and to support the LGBT community. The Bob Crew Foundation recently gave $3 million to the Maine College of Art to create the Bob Crew Program for Music and Art. Dan Crew is currently overseeing the creation and construction of the program. And this is just what you've been doing recently.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Filled in my spare time.
2: Yes, Yes. in your spare time. And your house was actually featured in Maine Home and Design not so long ago. That's correct. You put a lot of effort into that house. But tell me about why Maine? Why did you decide to come here? Why was it important?
1: Well, back in 1990, I had uh, completed the sale of a a music publishing company with my brother. And that gave me tremendous flexibility to pretty much do what I wanted to do. And so the following summer, we wound up summering up on North Haven. And by the second month or month and a half after I was up there, I came back from my bike ride and I announced to my wife, I said, uh, I'm not going back. Now, I have to understand, I had, it was sort of an internal uh, epiphany. But I had not thought. What did that? What does that actually mean? So it wasn't that we were going to live on North Haven or what have you, but I wasn't going back to what we had, and that precipitated a lot of action. So by September, we moved into a house up on the Western Prom, and my kids never left. The, went from the island right to school in Portland, and um, the rest evolved from that and part and parcel of that is I also had to let Bob Ludwig was very close friend of mine and someone whom I had been advising for many years let him know that we were not going to be building a studio in New York City which had been what we had been talking about for some time and he was his reaction was I thought he was having a heart attack but his reaction was oh my god do you think we could do it in Maine because he had this he and Gail his wife had this personal uh, hope that one day they could move to Maine because his father and mother already lived here they had retired up here so in the process long took it took it took me about six months to do a business plan and uh, I came up with the with the idea that it would work you. Know, it, but that it, it, may, it may not be a, uh, as big as it would be in New York City, but I really knew it could succeed. And as it turned out, after we did it, it turned out to be bigger than even New York. It was huge and is, to this day, a huge success.
2: And you're talking about the Gateway Studios. Yes, that's right, yeah. We did have the opportunity to interview Bob and actually his wife Gail was in the studio with us and and it seems like they were able to you were all collectively able to bring some pretty big names to Maine
1: and they still do I mean the, it is probably one of the best mastering studios in the world and at the time early on because in 91 when we opened actually in ninety officially opened in 93 but we actually opened November of 92 with our first couple of artists but by um, by the, by the second or third year of our operation, we exceeded our 10-year goal. So it was a raving success.
2: Where are you originally from?
1: I lived in New York, but had moved to, to Connecticut. I was at that moment living in Western Connecticut with my wife and my two young girls. And uh, Bob was in New York City. So it was quite a, a, a transition for both for both of us really.
2: Why music? What was it about music that kind of got you into the music publishing business and has kept you interested all this time? Well,
1: I always tell this little uh, quote joke. Uh, people ask me all the time how to get into the music business and I say, well, my experience is this. You go to the Naval Academy, you graduated from the Naval Academy, you serve and become an officer in the service and you get out and go to work for uh, Bell Laboratories, and then your brother comes and asks to have lunch with you one day and says, <laughs> would you think about coming into the music business with me? Because things were, what had happened is, the four seasons start to break wide open. My brother didn't know what to do, and he came to me to help, and I joined him, and that's all, now, rest is all history. I've been in the music business since 1961.
2: And you were able to work for quite a long time, in fact, up until his death, with your brother in a very close capacity.
1: My brother had a a series of physical problems that developed, but in the last three years, four years, it became very serious, and I had to uh, bring him to Maine and put him into a nursing home. But up until then, we had been in business, and I had always been in the role of You know, fireman might be the word. So, (laughs) Yeah, but we had built, in the 60s, he and I had built a hugely successful production and publishing company. Uh, We had a series of number, I mean, a lot of number one records, top ten records, and uh, part of which is the history that has been shown on Broadway with the show Jersey Boys, which is basically the story of one of our groups called The Four Seasons. The interesting part of that is, when we were doing all of those records, when we were doing The Four Seasons, and Mitch Ryder, and The Detroit Wheels, and Leslie Gore, and all of those artists that were ours that we produced and released records by, we had this uh, attitude that this is just music for this week. And, we ha- and are we on the charts this week? And what role are we on the charts? How many sales have we had? No one would have thought that records and music that we were creating in 1961 through 1966 or 67 would find itself on Broadway in the 2000s and be a, quite honestly one of the biggest hits, financial hits, uh, in the history of Broadway, it's still running on Broadway. It's in its ninth year on in, on Broadway. It's in London. It's in Las Vegas. It's got a road company. It's been it's had companies in Australia and Canada and South Africa, uh, so it, quite honestly, it's beyond you can't conceive of that. You can't look forward and say, "Oh, this is what's going to happen with our lives." It altered a lot of the things that we could do. And as a result of Jersey Boys, the side, one of the great benefits is the Bob Crew Foundation, because what do you do with all the success? You So what we're, we're basically, Bob and I decided, is to pay it forward. And so, hence, we formed the foundation. And of course, at the time, my brother was still reasonably well. But then he had this very tragic fall when we were going to, um, the next day we were supposed to go and celebrate the fifth year of Jersey Boys in New York, and he fell down flight of stairs and pretty much permanently damaged his uh, brain. And so that set this whole cycle for the next three years or so for him, downward spiral. It was a very tragic um, episode for ev- for all of us, but uh, sad because he can't enjoy what we're now able to do. It's tough. It's
2: You you've had a lot of tough things actually. Yeah. Your daughter Jessie died 19 years ago. Yeah. And we had her mother who is now Sydney. Right. on the show um, and he was telling us about how this impacted his music because he went through a gender reassignment surgery. Oh yeah. Um you've you've had a lot of things.
1: Jesse's death was the most significant event in both of our lives, and certainly it still profoundly affects everything I do and think about. There, there isn't a day that I don't think about Jesse, and that so much of my motivation is about the concept, that this is a concept that I have, and that she hasn't been able to live her life out, and I'm living out her life for her, doing the kind of things that I really am convinced she would have done. She had this belief and she had righteous indignation. She was going to correct so many things and and she did and she had a major impact on her classmates who talk about her and still talk about her. So um, yes, Jessie was phenomenal. She was a phenomenon. But I, am, I do mean this when I say that at one point, when I really didn't know I would be able to go on because of the grief, it was that realization that I had to make a difference, that I had, in her name, do something to make a difference. And um, that's what I've been doing.
2: For people who are listening to the show, I know that um, they've probably heard uh, Sidney Bullen's interview Jessie's mom, but we're talking about Jessie Bullens-Crew, who died when she was 11, and um, I had met you and her mother at Maine Medical Center. I know that you do not remember this, but I was a resident, actually, maybe even a medical student then, and I think that I told Sydney that um, there was something very um, fiery about about your daughter. Yeah and it was really one of these very you know you describe someone who hadn't completely lived out her life but it almost seems as though i don't know she was she was like a fire starter she was an instigator she was some somehow there was something that she came here to do and it's not as if her life was cut short somehow she just kind of set fire to the grasses and now this yeah. is happening
1: well you've hit it on the, on the right on the, the head i Jessie oftentimes I've thought about it. Uh, she really didn't have to live any longer. She did her job. I know that sounds weird, but she had such a completeness of personality and thought, and objective that she was. She was uh, startling in her behavior, and, and people. She was. She affected people all the time. Yes, and that, you know something. She's a hard act to follow. I'm serious when I say that. Jessie, yeah, she was something else. But uh, no, I don't remember. But of course, you know, we're living in a constant state of fog back when she was ill. And I will say this, never during that period of time, until the very last days when she suddenly had this tragic episode of an, an opportunistic disease, because she didn't die from cancer. She died from meningitis, which even the doctors agree that she probably got in the hospital. And she got, she, we were planning for a transplant and we were getting ready to move in those days we didn't do what she, the autogonous transplant. So we were going to Nebraska, we were getting ready. We were actually getting ready to move and I got in a car and all, all that kind of stuff. And then one night she got very, very sick and the next day we rushed her to the hospital and in roughly twenty-four hours, she was gone. And uh, it was as if she got hit by a truck, because there was there was no pre-thought that she we would lose her. And from my perspective, as her father, which anybody who has gone through this would identify with, is that the, my role is to protect my children. And it got it took a while for me to be able to deal with the fact that it, you know I couldn't have saved her, but it was it it. Uh, Tore me apart, and uh, but I will say, using her as a guide star, you know, she has changed lives. She's made a difference. Everything from what we have been able to do for the Maine Children's Cancer Program. I mean, through the Jesse Bull and Scrooge Foundation, we've raised between five and six hundred thousand dollars for their program. You know, we've. She's got a building now named for her at Breakwater School. I gave 21 acre to a nature preserve which is owned by Breakwater School for the kids for nature studies. So there's a lot of stuff that she's engendered. We're just passing her message along as far as I see it. And and of course Sid who created a beautiful album which was pretty much inspired 100% by Jesse's life and death has had a very profound effect on other people who have gone through this kind of tragic loss.
2: The foundation that you've created, the Bob Crew Foundation, which you are working on in collaboration with your other daughter. Yes. Who is has two children now of her own and another one on the way.
1: Well, she's getting this one is the punishment child. This one's a boy. She's had, <laughs> she has two girls, which are you know, I keep telling her this is just rehearsal. <laughs> yes, yeah, so she's due in uh, September.
2: So you've had a chance to work closely with her on this foundation that is yes. in memory of her uncle, your brother, mm-hmm. um, and your your causes are aspiring musicians and artists, but also the LGBT community, Yeah. so a lot of what you're working on um, is drawn from these passions that you've developed over the course of a lifetime and over experience that you've had not only with art and music, but also with people who are lesbian, gay, um, bisexual, or transgender?
1: Well, my brother was gay. My ex-wife is transgender, and I'm gay. So, yet my life has been, you know, hard to describe because it's not fit the normal, uh, what you would call, uh, example. So, it was perfectly natural to add LGBT to the mix. You have to also know that my brother started in art school. He went to Parsons and he transitioned from art to music, is an acclaimed producer and songwriter, he's in the Songwriter Hall of Fame, and yet he went back in, in his last roughly 15 years of his life, 20 years of his life, he went back to, to art and had quite a, a, a recognized art career beyond his music career. So the point is, and both he and I had this experience, We we come from an era when public schools had a part of their education. Art and music was as important as arithmetic, which is not the same today. It's a, now we call that enrichment. Right, which is often financed and produced by others, outsiders, raising money, et cetera, for this extra uh, part of our, hopefully, our, our educational process. But we felt, my brother and I felt, that we wanted to do whatever we could, whenever we could, to pay it forward in that area. And so that, although we don't concentrate exclusively at the sort of middle school or, kinder, or uh, uh, elementary school level, because we do do scholarships at college level. We, it is primarily establishing programs and or scholarships for people who would not have the opportunity if, unless we made it happen. So we underwrite an enrichment program at Breakwater School, but it's not for Breakwater School specifically, it's for the greater Portland area school children who can enroll in the enrichment program after school, which we sponsor and pay for. Or in the case of Maine College of Art, we sponsor scholarships for those uh, applicants, we sponsor USM School of Music, we sponsor the Mitchell Institute. Uh, again, defining it, these are going to be scholarships for people in art, music, or LGBT, or a combination of the three. And of course, we support things like the Peabody House here in Portland and other HIV/AIDS programs and or equal rights. Uh, we support a program against bullying in school, and an awful lot of bullying has to do with gender. Of you know the appearances of, of kids, so there's a there's a multitude of things that we are focused on, but they all have the same core, you know, it is trying to make a difference and at an early enough age that it does make an, a difference.
2: So tell me how you yourself got from the man who graduated from the Naval Academy to the man who. And I mean personally, because it sounds the way you've described it is, well, this person brought me over here, and this person brought me over here. But you must have had some core of love of music, art, oh, yeah. yourself. Well,
1: let me tell you, uh, my brother. It became very apparent. He's older than I. He's four years older than I. So I, every school we went to, he, I was always trailing him, right? And yes. He was always involved in school, art, music, so was I. I'm sure, I know we did have very different brains. And so I had this other side, I had this other sort of bifurcated part of my brain is I am very logical, even though I'm very artistic. One thing I realized is that my brother was a uh, an exceptional person creatively. And for some reason that pushed me on the other side of the brain and I went down that path. Now, as it turned out, because I was you know creative, but I was also very logical and very pragmatic and and had that capacity my, my brother, I call it this way, he had to have a harness on him. Otherwise, you know, he would've been a, he would have been a total disaster. <laughs> God love him. But it's true, you know. There's a, there's a there's only. But the harness can't be too tight because you can't stifle creativity. But creative people are nuts. <laughs> I mean, trust me, they are nuts. And I because I've been working with them my entire life. I've been managing. I've been organizing. I've been saving careers. I've been doing it all. They're all crazy people now. Some of them are actually quite lovable, but no, they are nuts. My brother was one of the nuts, and I, God love him. But we worked incredibly well together. We had a, we had a balance that uh, was phenomenal. Unfortunately, and here's the, the core of the problem, the core of the problem was it's a family tradition, you know, get it to become addictive. So he, he crashed and burned, and it split our careers. I went my way. And, he went his, and unfortunately, I had to come back to save him. But that's a whole different story. But a lot of a lot of the issues around creative people is how do you maintain that balance between creativity and insanity? And part of the insanity can be exacerbated by drugs and alcohol. And in my brother's case, that was the, that was his. That was the case.
2: It's so interesting as you're describing this because. Um, In my family, we have a tendency to become doctors and lawyers and military people. And two of my most creative siblings, because there are a ton of us, they actually end up going to the Air Force Academy. Oh, really? Both of them were very, very artistic, and yet they chose that path. And I'm wondering, as you're talking, if there wasn't something in that bifurcated brain that you're describing about yourself that they also recognized, you know, this sort of how do I harness this creative energy and how do I, how do I make that, uh, I don't know, how do I make that work for my life? Because I don't, it it seems to me that in this world, we often emphasize um, the linear. We Mm -hmm. We emphasize the linear, the path that moves you forward in a very direct way. And so if you have a creative mind, that path doesn't necessarily exist.
1: It's very hard to find a path if you're very, very creative because well, you, all you're doing is expressing yourself constantly and it doesn't necessarily give you a real path. So, uh, And there are exceptions to that. I mean, certainly there are people who can very clearly focus and and work their creativity in that focus. But yes, I do think it's a difficult road. And, and, and oftentimes, and certainly there are so many stories of how did this creative person get from here to there. And there's usually somebody behind the scenes that you don't really know that well or know that much about that sort of does this role that manipulates the harness. And, uh, and sometimes it's done because um, that person who is able to do that sees this creative potential and can help bring it to where it's more effective. In my case, uh, I don't know if I recognized, I just knew that I wasn't going to go the same path. I, I was watching my brother, and at the time I was making choices about what I was going to do, go, and go to college, or what have you. you know, I saw my brother sort of scrambling out there in the universe, and it wasn't very appealing to me. Uh, but I had always had its fascination with the sea, number one, we come from a long line of Fishermen from Newfoundland, and so there was this, I think, organic part of our stories. And also, I I did have this strong penchant for order, uh, figuring it out, figuring it out. You know, I was from a young age. I wanted to solve the problem, right? So, uh, speaking about the Air Force Academy, just as a quick aside, I graduated in nineteen fifty-seven. Yes. We're talking about 1957, not 1857. I graduated in 1957 from the Naval Academy, and the Air Force Academy had not graduated its first class. I think their first class was 58 or 59. I was one of the last classes from the Naval Academy and West Point that used to provide 25% of the regular officer corps to the Air Force. So I went to the Air Force. So I graduated from the Naval Academy. I'd been to the Air, Naval Reserve, that's how I got my commission to um, my appointment to the, the academy. Then I graduated from the Naval Academy. Then I went into the United States Air Force. I re- resigned when I was a captain in the Air Force, and then eventually resigned from the Air Force Reserve you know, eight or ten years later. I don't know I don't know this. The path is, is is it's funny. I mean it's. I'm a believer in serendipity, but you have to take action, in a serendipitous. Environment, so and so a lot of people don't realize something's happening, but I've had a lot of those kind of things happen. You know, whether it was Neil Diamond, who I represented, or, I mean, I've, I've had a, a lot of, experience in that aha, this is this is the moment.
2: One of the things that we talk about often is this idea that creativity doesn't just have to be. As a musician or as an artist, I mean, creativity actually can be the ability to creatively work with people, the ability oh, sure. to creatively manage, the ability to creatively organize a business. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah,
1: creative business people are the ones that think of these things that people are, first of all, don't think of, and then they t- have, they have the ability to take action. So, so they do, they are that's creative. You know whether you're, whether you're an architect or whether you're somebody who can envision Apple. You know, so there's creativity in all of us. It's just how do we express it? And how, are we, how do we encourage it? How does our business world encourage it? How does our, our educational world encourage uh, creativity? I'm a, you know, there's recently, there's a lot of studies that are showing that you'd be better off going to art school if you want a career in business, because businesses are starting to recognize that those original thinkers are very valuable to, to creativity in business.
2: Well, I mean, my observation of you, if you'll, if you'll allow me, is even from the first time I met you, there was an openness. So this idea that you're describing this serendipitous nature of life that really is only helped by someone who is open to serendipity. And I believe if you have a creative mind, you you can be more open to things that might come along and present themselves as important. Yeah,
1: It's, it's the absence of fear. You can't be frightened about things. But what's the downside? What's the downside? What's the big deal? That's how I look at it. What's the big deal? So you take chances, build, Gateway mastering. What the hell?
2: (laughs) Well, the other thing that I also am struck by is talking to you is just this idea that we don't all have to become whatever it is that we are set out to be when we're 20 years old. We don't have to be in the Navy for the rest of our lives. We can have that be great for the time that it is. We can then join the Air Force. We can then do, you know, gateway mastering or Bell Laboratories or that we can be different people along different points in our lives. And that's that's great, actually. That's encouraged.
1: It's exciting. It's exciting. It, you know, the whole idea is just do it. You know, wake up. You got an idea. You believe in certain things. You believe in yourself. Trust yourself and take action. Uh, there really are very few consequences.
2: Dan, how can people find out about the Bob Crew Foundation?
1: Oh, great. Uh, well, there is a Bob Crew Foundation website. We are going to rework the website right now. It's been static for, we, we did it, we needed to get something together, and we did get it together about three, three, four years ago. It, right now, it's, we're going to revise it. But you can go into the website, and there is, if you are eligible, and you'll see this, the, the ways in which that uh, is um, presented, you can make an application for grant applications through through that. But uh, we only give to 501 Cs. We don't give to individuals. So it's, I, I alert people, please. We are, we, you won't be considered as an individual. We don't do that. But if you are part of an organization then that is a 501 c. absolutely look at uh, the website and you'll see what we do support. We don't usually support operations or bricks and mortar, but if you realize that uh, our, our passion mostly is letting individuals get a step up, so scholarships and those kind of grants are what we, we prefer. The exception has been the uh, Mecca program which is a combination. It's a combination because there had to, I wanted to have one place that would be the legacy for my brother Bob, and we're taking that and we're building that out at Mecca, which is going to be both a program, and it also is going to house a gallery which has his art, which is quite amazing. And I say that, believe me, advisedly, but it is amazing art. And, of course, a lot of the memorabilia from his years of success in the music business, gold records, et cetera. So, uh, and it's uh, being built out right now as we speak. It'll probably be done in about six weeks. We're having the big gala event will be in October, October 3rd, which will be a combination of a memorial that we're going to have for him. at the, We're going to present that at the Masonic Hall over here and then everybody will go over to Mecca and where we'll we'll have this inaugural moment for the gallery and for the program.
2: We've been speaking with Dan Crew, who is a supporter of the Arts in Maine and president of the Bob Crew Foundation, named for his late brother. I can't really think of a more perfect person for our 200th episode, and it's certainly a well-deserved honor that you are one of um, this year's 50 Mainers um, through Maine Magazine. I really appreciate all the work that you've done over the course of your life and um, with your family, and all the support that you continue to give to artists, musicians, um, people in the LGBT community. It's quite wonderful. Thanks so much for coming Uh, in.
1: You're very kind. Thank you.
0: Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by MacPage, an accounting and management consulting firm that believes the path to success is paved by their ability to build lasting, meaningful relationships with their clients. MacPage, accessible, approachable, and accountable. For more information, go to macpage.com. Love, Main Radio is brought to you by Berlin City Honda, where the car buying experience is all about easy. After all, life is complicated enough and buying a car shouldn't be. That's why the Berlin City Honda team goes the extra mile by pre-discounting all their vehicles and focus their efforts on being open, honest, and all about getting you on the road. In fact, Berlin City recently won the 2015 Women's Choice Award, a strong testimony to their ability to deliver a different kind of car buying experience. Berlin City Honda of Portland easy it's how buying a car should be go to Berlin City Honda for more information there was a time when the apothecary was a place where you could get safe reliable medicines carefully prepared by experienced professionals coupled with care and attention focused on you and your unique health concerns apothecary by design is built around the forgotten notion that you don't just need your prescriptions filled. You need attention, advice, and individual care. Visit their website, apothecarybydesign.com, or drop by the store at 84 Marginal Way in Portland and experience pharmacy care the way it was meant to be.
2: In this segment, we feature an excerpt from our conversation with Jean McGinnis, Founder of the Main Center for Creativity.
3: Um, I really wanted a public discussion of art, of creativity. Um, there, when I first started talking about this, even with the newspaper, they didn't know which reporter to send to me. And I said, "Well, send the business reporter." They said, "No, we can't send the business reporter." <laughs> okay, send the arts reporter. Well, it's not really just art; it, it's it's an interesting project because it truly is the combination of business and art, but it's working as one, so it's something else. It doesn't fit in either of those boxes. And public art is that vehicle that allows us, not allows us, just, you know, almost, you know, from inside, we have to express what we think about what's happening in the public art arena. And that's a good thing. And the big things that I learned personally through that process was to sit and listen, hear what people are saying, hear where the fears are, hear where the excitement is, hear where the um, the, the frustrations are. Because all of that is part of what we're dealing with in our community. Um, it wasn't easy. <laughs> and I didn't know. I wasn't knowledgeable about how it would affect me and what I would have to do. Um, So how did it affect you? I think it gave me a bigger connection to all the levels of frustration in the community and a bigger connection to all the beauty and high thinking in the community as well. And so it's sort of, again, opposite ends coming together and saying, wow, we're all connected to these big, amazing thoughts, you know. Um, And we're also connected to these very dark thoughts. And together, when we express them and put them out there, then we move forward as a community. So it's really fascinating stuff, what art brings up.
2: Do you think that's a metaphor for the individual where most of us have dark thoughts.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Not, not that I'm admitting anything, but, you know, <laughs> that many, let's just say most of us have dark thoughts, but most of us have thoughts of beauty. Do you think that that
3: mm-hmm. It just that? seems like the human condition. And the more we can grab on to our positive thoughts and actually create what we imagine in those big spaces, I think the more exciting our lives are, the more exciting our community is, I mean, some people said, who are you to do this, you know, and I said, I don't know, I'm just me, you know, I'm just Gene. I had the the picture, I talked to people, and really, who are you not to create your big vision as well? And I, I find it wonderful that because the Center for Creativity exists, people share with me their big ideas. Um, And I can't always do much about it, but I can tell them my journey and what I did. Um, I can give suggestions, hope, um, ways that they might go about it that they might not have thought about before. So I think people in the community sharing their big visionary ideas is an important part of our creative growth and our economic growth. And the more we can unleash the creativity in the community and the more we can help put people together to create these beautiful things that people are thinking about, uh, the more wonderful our lives become individually and as a full community as well.
2: Jean, as we're recording this, you're getting ready to go to Paris. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: Are you doing this as a means of stimulating your own creativity?
3: I'm sure it will. But um, interesting story on this. It's a bucket list um, item for my husband. Um, Not too long ago this past fall, he fell very ill. And he's a very healthy, athletic man. Handsome, too, I may add.
2: (laughs) And I hope he listens to this, because I can hear the love just coming from you.
3: Well, and we both had a scare that he couldn't go to work for three weeks, and that had never, ever happened to him before. And he said, you know, I'm looking at my bucket list, and I have a master's in art history, and I haven't been to Paris. And I said, you're right, honey, we're going. I don't know how. I don't know really why I think this is realistic. But we just pieced it together in odd ways, and... One of my first deep trainings around creative economy was attending the third international conference on creative economy in Belfast, Northern Ireland. Um, and interestingly, my family is from Ireland, so it was just kind of a, you know, life brings you these things, and if, if you're open to them, you respond. And um, I went to this conference and really studied what others had been doing um, and that was one of the reasons I thought about, well, I'd, ha- I'd have to create the 501c3 because the European governments were the government's um, you know, directors of culture, arts, and sports, as an example would be some of their titles. Um, so I think it's great that we now have a sports commission here in Maine um, so that we're really looking at how do we put all these ideas about how we live our lives into a place that shows people that we want to attract them here. Because a lot of what we want to do here in Maine is bring more people here. We have the room, we have the beauty to share, um, and it seems important to um, let people know that we're nurturing creativity. I think it's a lot about trying to create a balance um, of space and intense thinking. Um, Space and intense thinking, (laughs) or deep thinking, I don't know if it's intense. but the fact that I was on a bike ride um, sort of points out that I was breaking away from the work of trying to solve the problem. And instead, I was really just letting the universe sort of come in. And I I think it's pretty fascinating myself. I mean, th- believe me, this doesn't happen all the time. <laughs> but I felt it was very fascinating that I was in such a state of... Um, not just reverie, but gratitude. I was feeling very thankful for this very specific moment. I was in a moment. I was riding my bike with my husband. The sky was blue. You know, the ocean looked gorgeous. The temperature was perfect. It was one of those main September days. And it's fascinating to me that when you stay in that moment and really feel it it the way it is, then things can loosen and, and unwind and, and reconnect in different ways. And one of the dilemmas I was trying to solve in this creative work was how do we build infrastructure around our creative people and how do we create the infrastructure that's new and different? Um, because our business systems are all changing. The traditional systems aren't working. The new systems are coming up. And the tanks really just struck me suddenly as infrastructure. Oh, my goodness. Those are infrastructure. Now, previous to that moment, I could not have seen them as infrastructure, but I really understood, oh, this is what infrastructure is. This is how we drive around. This is how we fly in planes. This is how our paper mills go. You know, this is sort of the quiet um, Stuff that's underneath what we're doing, and you know, we probably have passed those tanks thousands of times, and we don't really think about how it holds together a lifestyle that we live. Um, and whether you agree with it or not is sort of exactly the the juice. You know, that's where the juice is. So my personal process seems to mimic, you know, that whole idea of you're sort of you're sorting through a problem. You release it for a while, go and sing, dance, paint and then boom, something new gets connected and I, people sometimes ask me when they talk to me are you an, what kind of an artist are you?" you know and I say, I don't know, I don't know what this is called <laughs> but I know I'm creating something and I think creation is really where the excitement is. <gasps>
2: In this segment, we feature an excerpt from our conversation with Rodney Eason from Coastal Maine Botanical Gardens.
4: Just the terrain of Maine and the sort of unspoiled, um, Waldenesque nature of Maine draws a lot of people, especially folks from the East Coast, because it's that last piece of uh, sort of unpreserved wilderness that one might imagine, and yet it's with you can hop on 95 and get here. And so a lot, it does draw a lot of people to, to come and see the coastline. And of course people want to see lobsters and now they can see a botanical garden, which is, um, when I heard that there was a botanical garden in Maine, I thought, well, you can grow blueberries and spruce trees. So what else can you do? And, um, after digging in further, there surely is a whole lot you can, can grow and being in the gardens in the summer just shows us how many people come to our state. Um, and hopefully more people will, uh, decide that it is a great place to live and it is a great place to retire or even move your family here like we did. We love it.
2: I have spent time at the Botanical Gardens, actually, I think it was several years ago there was an event that we went to, and I was impressed not just by the plants, but also by the layout, by the sculptures, um, by the buildings. Right. I mean, it really has this very beautiful flow to it when you're walking around, and um, you, you've been working on a, a twenty-year plan for the botanical gardens. Right. Tell me what you've done so far and what you hope to be doing.
4: Sure. So, with the the gardens themselves, what you have seen thus far is is uh, are the efforts of really about a ten-year um, a, a, a ten-year effort. So, the gardens have only been open for eight years. So, we are one of the youngest botanical gardens in the United States, and I think that's what people are drawn to when they come to our gardens is that they're uh, extremely different than most other public gardens. A lot of other public gardens in the United States are either sort of replications of a French garden or an Italianate garden, which were more scaled on the um, for a king or an emperor or a ruler. And our gardens have none of that. That's more of a, of a people's garden, and it's a place to meander, especially in our... Um, the the garden of the five senses the learner family garden of the five senses it's a place where people can explore we actually have an area where there's a reflexology labyrinth where we ask folks to please take your shoes off and walk on the stones and feel this um so it's a much different experience than i've ever encountered encountered in a public garden and i think As we go forward, one of the biggest things that we've sort of talked about as a collective group, as an institutional body, is that as we go forward in this master plan is that we don't screw up Um, because Maine and the Maine coastline, especially in that Booth Bay Harbor Peninsula, uh, is gorgeous on its own right. And so that itself can stand alone. But then when we sort of insert this botanical garden, it needs to be beautiful. It needs to be awe-inspiring. There was something that we talked about when I was at Longwood Gardens that someone said um, as... As any garden goes forward, what you would love to see is like open doors in the parking lot where people get there and they forget to take their keys out and they forget to close their doors just because they're so awestruck. And I'm hoping that I'll see that at Coastal Maine Botanical Gardens in the future, that there will be all these open doors in the parking lots and everybody will leave their keys just because they're so excited to come in and see what we're doing there.
2: Booth Bay is an interesting place because it has this rich heritage of seagoing people and boats and, you know, going out to Monhegan. and But it also has the Bigelow Labs. Yeah. Um, my son was up there two summers ago. I wrote an article about them for Maine Magazine. And they actually have a, an affiliation with the Coastal Maine Botanical Gardens. I believe that you, you have summer interns that hang out with their summer interns and make that connection. And I think these types of connections are happening all over the place in Booth Bay.
4: That, that's right. Why,
2: why is that? Why is there this interesting energy, this synergy of different sorts of people being brought together in Booth Bay.
4: It's, I mean, I think you're hitting on a great point. And the locals, uh, folk, folks who who have grown up in Booth Bay, and I've sort of been told that means you you either came over on a ship or you uh, have native roots there. Um, and if you didn't, then they tend to call everybody people from away. And um, it's funny to hear that. And then. Um, just sort of uh, going around the, the entire peninsula, we see that we go from a population um, from Route 1 south to about, in January, we probably have about 6,000 residents. And then in August we go up to about sixty to seventy thousand residents, so we need to stay close during the winter. Um, and with nonprofits and other cultural attractions, it's really this: all boats float with the rising tide. So the more that we share information, the more that we sort of promote the next generation, and the more that we sort of that we talk um, between ourselves. Why make enemies in such a small area in such a small state? Uh, when we can all work together to sort of promote what we're, we're all trying to strive for. And that's I see it as happiness. We're all searching for happiness in life, and it just depends on what people are looking for. And I, I love the analogy that uh, plants, horticultural, and gardening in itself is, is, could be called the slowest of the performing arts. And that from seed to germination to the plant and the flowering, everything takes on a different season.
2: in this segment we feature an excerpt from our conversation with Adam Burke of TEDxDiego and Treehouse how were you able to hone your own idea of authentic living you know what was the process that you went through because it does again you have this zigzag path but i know you also have an education background so was there were there steps you took in your own life
5: yes so it's been a decades long process at the very least that uh, Started when I was 18 and I moved from New Jersey to Boston and I was going to Boston University and Studying psychology, which uh, was one of my first loves and at the same time just bumping into myself and Cognitive dissonance uh, between who I wanted to be uh, between truths that I was discovering around the world Um, I started learning about Buddhism and started practicing meditation and just had particular experiences that really awakened me to some things that I think are well described by Eastern philosophy. And so that severely disrupted my worldview and uh, things that I thought were important. And so that really started me down that path. And then uh, it was again about how what I was able to do as I put life together, what experiences were offered to me, and again, just staying true to certain principles within my own life, uh, always trying to be humble and, and to serve the greater good are just two simple things that I live by. Um, and those just unfolded in my graduate degree in education was was a synth- synthesizing moment uh, as I studied uh, education as a broad field. Uh, my love of learning had persisted despite my uh, formal schooling, so I was really interested in what else was available and uh, study things from Waldorf to Montessori to Reggio Emilia to free schooling to what was happening in various charter schools around the country and Through that, uh, I wrote a thesis that was called Holistic Connections Between Ecology and Character, which really brought together um, two strands of thought that inform who I am as a person, and one is ecology, and that's part of my background as a wilderness guide and naturalist, and also character development, which which is rooted heavily in Eastern philosophy, and seeing that these two things were essentially uh, part of and an extension of each other. And so within that framework is how I now can walk out into the world and feel like a whole person instead of someone that's fragmented by, that zigzag path that didn't always make sense to me.
2: It actually kind of harkens back a little bit to Thoreau, except that he kind of went out into the wilderness and really never came back. You've kind of gone out into the wilderness and come back and are really attempting to live this authentic life that you've described.
5: Yes, I'm trying very hard.
2: I imagine that this can't have all been easy. I mean you're talking about generating hope and living authentically and you're working with the digital technology but also sort of back to the earth. I mean, what are some of the challenges that you've encountered personally and within the um, the umbrella under the umbrella of TEDx?
5: Yeah, challenges have been busyness and managing myself, my commitments, uh, being realistic uh, about what I can change for myself first and foremost and then secondly what I might be able to change outside of myself. Uh, Maintaining balance is the fundamental challenge so I'm constantly working on that making sure I have time to play making sure I have time to to be with my family Um, because I'm just as comfortable being out poking through the woods looking through mushrooms as I am you know being pretty prolific on social media Uh, so what I'm finding through the TEDx event and the global community as a whole is that Uh, Technology is integral to keeping and fostering that community in between events, but that opportunity to come together, be in person, put the phones down, and look at each other in the eyes, and say, what are you passionate about, and tell me about that, and connect on that level is vital, and that's the real glue. The, The rest is kind of a reaching out for one another where we can start to get a sense, but the magic happens once we come together and we can be with one another in that space.
2: You did something, I think, that just ended very recently, where you did this whole farm-to-school project, and it's kind of similar, where you're kind of reaching deep and digging into the soil and connecting to something very tangible, but I also understand that you involved technology and connections, and it wasn't just one school. Can you just describe that for people who are listening?
5: Yeah, sure. For two years, I worked on a federal grant project that was targeting obesity prevention, and we were working with 12 schools across two districts in southern Maine. And our strategy was to increase access to healthy food and physical activity, and my passion was the farm-to-school element of that. Uh, So I did a lot of work connecting cafeterias to local farmers, to working through distributors, uh, as well as retraining cafeteria staff and bringing in the folks that were the reality, reality behind the reality for Jamie Oliver's, Food Revolution in West Virginia and they did a a boot camp for for all the food service folks in two districts it was a pretty magical time and it was cool to see people get empowered around that we can be creative and we can do this it doesn't have to be what we've been doing which again is the spark of TEDx is that oh we can do it differently Um, so that we created this distributed network of people across those schools as well as elsewhere in the state so people commonly empowered each other to keep going uh, and then created feedback loops with the students so that we really encouraged people to also keep putting better food on the plates.
2: You've been listening to Love, Main Radio, show number 200, Giving Voice. Our guests have included Dan Crew, Gene McGinnis, Rodney Eason, and Adam Burke. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit lovemainradio.com. For more information about Dan Crew, read our 50 Mainers feature in the July issue of Maine Magazine. Lovemain Radio is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Lovemain Radio Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter and see my running, travel, food, and wellness photos as bountiful one on Instagram. We love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of Love, Maine Radio. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they have enabled us to bring Love, Maine Radio to you for each of the past 200 shows. This is Dr. Lisa Belial. I hope that you have enjoyed our Giving Voice show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of so many of your days. May you have a bountiful life.
0: Love Main Radio is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Main Magazine, Apothecary by Design, MacPage, and Berlin City Honda of Portland. Love Main Radio is recorded in the studio of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street, Portland, Maine. Our executive producers are Susan Grisanti, Kevin Thomas, and Dr. Lisa Belial. Audio production and original music by John C. McCain. Our content producer is Kelly Clinton. Love, Maine Radio is available for download free on iTunes. See www.lovemainradio.com or the Love, Maine Radio Facebook page for details.